Open your Bibles, if you have them, in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verse 47 this morning. Matthew chapter 26. We'll start in verse 47, and we'll go through verse 56. So Matthew 26, 47 to 56. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to be arrested. This text is going to be very familiar to most of you. And in fact, most of the texts that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks on to the end of this year are going to be pretty familiar to you as we go through the passion narrative of Jesus over the next few months. Now, the camera in the book of Matthew is going to follow Jesus pretty closely as he walks through all that he's about to go through in this next little 24-hour period or so of his life. Once we get to the crucifixion, the resurrection, or the, the burial of Christ, obviously it's going to deviate a little bit, but up until the burial of Christ, it's going to follow him pretty closely, aside from two aspects in our text where it's going to deviate and follow two disciples who both betray Christ and go two different directions in Peter and in Judas. For the most part, though, this camera is going to stay on Jesus for the rest of the way. So with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray for our text this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come together as your body, I pray that as we hear your word, as we seek to understand what it means that you would give us understanding. We know that understanding, illumination, that obedience even comes from your spirit alone. And so we pray that you would do that, that through your word, you would craft your people. You would speak to us, you would conform our hearts, you would train us in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. question that we're going to be wrestling with this morning. How deeply does your trust in the will of God actually go? How secure are you set in God's will for your life? And how deeply... Do you trust Him? Some of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture are contained within the book of Matthew. We've seen that over the years that we've been in the book of Matthew, and most especially in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And I've told you time and time again, and as we get closer to the end, I'm going to say it even more often, that the Sermon on the Mount is pivotal to the entire book of Matthew. But the reason why the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly difficult for us is not because it's difficult to understand. It's actually because it's very easy to understand. It's what is being said that's difficult. It's what we actually understand Jesus saying that presents the problem. Matthew 5, 43 to 45, which is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's difficult. Matthew 5.28, just a few verses before that. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's difficult. Matthew 5.22, just a few verses before that. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Then at the end of chapter 5, in verse 48, Jesus ends that beautiful line of reasoning by saying, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's a challenge. But see, then it gets hard after chapter 5. Now, obviously, Jesus is telling everyone that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven demands moral perfection. And every single one of us is going, we ain't got that. I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I think most of us would recognize that we have not moral perfection. So that's the bad news, right? That is the bad news. But then we get to chapter 6, and Jesus starts hitting other things that aren't direct moral choices, but more are the way we see our life day to day. How we actually live day to day, like our desire for wealth and a savings account. He says in chapter 6, 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, if I'm not to save up, if I'm not to store up treasures for myself, how then am I supposed to live as a citizen of this kingdom? What am I supposed to do? How do you expect me to survive? To which he then says just a few verses later in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? He tells you, trust. The Father sees that you need these things and He provides. So, Don't store up for yourselves treasures and instead 
Trust in the Lord. Live first for the kingdom and trust that the Lord is going to provide for you. So it's been pretty clear from the beginning that in the kingdom of heaven, you and I are not to get bogged down in the everyday, day-to-day struggles and anxieties of life and the worries of life. But we're to resign ourselves to the provisions of God and let Him take care of what we have. But if you notice, all of the moral perfection that's demanded in chapter 5, followed by all of the unwavering trust in God that comes in chapter 6, hinges on this little prayer that's situated right in between the two. We typically refer to it as the Lord's Prayer, and most of you know it by heart. Jesus is teaching, you'll remember, His disciples to pray, and He tells them to orient their prayer first to the glory of God and His kingdom. By saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Come down front, I see you. (laughs) Come to me, all who... (laughs) that's a first I've never had happen so early in the sermon conviction fell (laughs) but Jesus teaches them to pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name so he's teaching them to orient all of their life all of their thought process all of their prayer life into dependence on the Lord That it's about Him and it's not about me. Just remember that. It's about Him and it's not about me. That's how you should orient your prayer from the beginning. And then He teaches them, pray for daily bread, pray for forgiveness, that you would have help forgiving others, help for withstanding the temptations of the devil. Pray for all of those things. And right in the middle of this prayer is your resignation. Where you say this, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, if you're tracking there, we're taught to pray that God's will would be done. And then, just after we're told to pray that God's will would be done, we're told not to be anxious. Pray that His will will be done, and then don't be anxious. Then pray that His will would be done, and then don't worry about your treasures. Pray that His will would be done. That is, for me to obey Him morally, and for all the things that come about my day, for me to receive these as divine direction, because it's His will being done. Alright. Fast forward from that. All the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is now standing there with his disciples. And in the previous passage, just two seconds ago, he has been praying to his Father about this cup that is coming to him. And he prays, as we saw last week, he prays, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what does he say? Not as I will, but as you will. So we have words that he's repeating here in the garden as he's praying 
that are very similar to what he has taught his disciples to pray all the way back in chapter 6. Not as I will, but as you will. If that's the case, that he's just prayed that, like he's taught his disciples to pray in chapter 6, how then should Jesus respond now that he has prayed, your will be done? How should he respond? Should he respond in anxiety and stress? over what God is bringing to him as his will is made manifest in front of him? Should he seek to save his own life now that God's will is being made manifest to him? In fact, if the Sermon on the Mount is any indication, and if Jesus is a perfect citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then what we should see modeled for us is that he is going to be resigned to God's provision at this very moment when his life is required of it. He has just prayed, if it's possible let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And now God's will is going to be manifest to him, and how is he going to respond? For Jesus, God's will for him will mean the most horrific form of torture perhaps the world has ever seen. It will mean that he's going to be abandoned by his closest friends, and it is going to mean that he is going to face the wrath of God as he drains the cup dry. In this passage, we're going to see what it looks like when someone is resigned to the will of God being laid out in front of them. What perfect obedience. And the result of that kind of situation, to be honest, when someone is perfectly resigned to the will of God happening, even in the most dire of circumstances, when their life is required of them, the response that Jesus is going to give will make all of us very uncomfortable. We're first going to see that it requires Jesus to submit to his enemies. He's going to submit to his enemies. So having just prayed that God's will would be done, Jesus knows now the answer to his prayer. And you know what? The answer to his prayer doesn't come in the voice from heaven that we all want so much. Do you realize that? The clouds don't part. There is no voice that speaks from on high. You're going to die. Doesn't happen. What does happen? The footfalls of an angry mob in a quiet garden with torches and pitchforks. How does he know what God's will for him is? How does he know what the answer to his prayer is? Here they come. John tells us in, 11, in chapter 11, verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Judas, we've seen over the last few weeks, Judas has been the willing participant in that. He's answered that call, that job description. He's put in his application for it, and he's going to give Jesus over to them. He's going to identify the spot where he he, he was going to be. But if that's not enough, he's going to lead them to arrest him. And if that's not enough, in the darkness, he's going to identify his master in probably the way that is most detrimental to his own soul, which is by a kiss. Remember, he's walking up, he's leading these people in the pitch black, in the complete dark, and he's got to pick out which one 
Jesus is. Now, despite the pictures that you might see frequently about this scene, these are not Roman soldiers that are coming with the Jewish authorities that are coming to arrest Jesus. They're coming in the garden. They're temple guards. Temple guards, typically a Jewish set of of people that are uh, tasked with guarding the temple and are there to do the will of the chief priest. And we see that these guards are led by the servant of the high priest as he goes to arrest Jesus. Jesus is going to go undergo in these this next 24 hours really two trials that are going to take place. One is a trial before the Sanhedrin, which quite frankly doesn't mean much in terms of the legal status of Jesus. They don't have the authority to put him to death. The other trial, which means more for his life, is going to be the Roman trial that he's also going to undergo. But what we'll find in the book of Matthew is that the Jewish trial was actually a lot more telling. The Jewish trial is what Matthew focuses on a lot more. But these are Jews coming to arrest Jesus, and they're coming to take him away. And Judas approaches Jesus and identifies him in this vile way of a kiss on the cheek. And you'll notice again that instead of the term Lord, Judas is fond of using the term Rabbi. The term Lord is more often used by the disciples than Rabbi, but Judas is much more fond of the term Rabbi. See, it seems no matter how many times Jesus walks on water or how many times he feeds the 5,000 right in front of Judas, to Judas, Jesus only represents a meal ticket. He can turn him over for 30 pieces of silver. Yet, here is the one who has told us in Matthew 5, Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And here is Judas coming to betray him. How does Jesus identify Judas? What does he say in the text? Friend. We've already seen that Jesus has selected Judas. He knew precisely who Judas was going to be. He knew what part he was going to play. He knew that he was stealing from the money bag, and yet he put him over the money bag. And it's now the hour of his death. And Judas is the one to betray him, and he calls him friend. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As it turns out, when one is truly resigned to the will of God, There is no animosity towards sinful people through whom God's will is executed. You hear that? When one is resigned to the will of God, there's no room left for animosity toward those through whom God's will is going to be executed. Jesus is perfectly resigned to the will of God. He knows what his fate is going to be, and he has no animosity here towards Judas, through whom God's will is going to be executed. But he doesn't just submit to his enemies by accepting Judas's kiss, he also refuses to fight. He refuses to fight. He's, he's identified, and the authorities put him under arrest. And it's at this point where one of the disciples pulls out, of his, out his sword and reaches out, no doubt going for the head, missing and hitting the ear of the servant of the high priest and severs it off completely. And I'll give you one guess which disciple that was. It's a day for the children. That is correct. It's Peter. Rhetorical questions. Uh, 
<laughs> Peter's the one that reaches out his sword and cuts off the head. And we know that because John's the one that ratches, rat, rats him out. He tells us that it was Peter who did it. Remember just a few hours ago, he was the one, Peter was the one that told Jesus, hey, I'll go with you to the death. I'm going to fight tooth and nail. I'll die with you if I have to. And perhaps it's in that same vein that Peter is here willing to take out his sword and he's willing to fight, even if it means that the Roman soldiers, or in this case the temple guards, are going to put him to death. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus at this point reaches down and picks up the ear of the servant of the high priest and puts it back on his head. A person that John identifies for us is, goes by the name of Malchus. Probably, most likely, the reason John is able to drop that name and people that are reading it are expected to know who he was is most likely that guy became a Christian. You can imagine how that would happen if your ear was cut off by a disciple and Jesus had reached down, picked it up, and put it back on your head, you probably would see the light and come to faith too pretty quickly. Maybe start to question, what is it we're doing again? Why are we doing this? Nevertheless, Matthew tells us that Jesus, is, Jesus commands his disciples to drop the swords. And he says in, in verse 52, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But this is where Matthew wants you to understand what is taking place here. Jesus has prayed, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It's been made obvious that God's will was not for the cup to pass from Jesus, but for him to drink it. And so now he submits to the betrayal of his friend Judas. He loves his enemies. He prays for those who persecutes him. And he submits to the arrest. Perhaps the thought might come to you, well, he has no choice but to submit. Of course he's going to submit. He's cornered. They've got him pinned down in the garden. What's he going to do? Run from the temple guards? But Matthew wants to make sure that that thought, if it ever did come into your mind, escapes immediately because of verse 53. Look at what he says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. These men have clubs and torches. But Jesus makes it clear that He has a nuclear armament standing by. That there is no person coming to arrest Him. That God, if He so chose, could send twelve legions of angels to rescue Jesus. I don't need your help, Peter. It's a reminder to His disciples and to us that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He's submitting to the will of His Father. But you notice also in this passage that He submits to the Scriptures. Look in verse 54. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Or look at verse 56. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus is, is giving the first assurance in verse 54 to the disciples that are with Him, specifically to Peter, who's wanting to fight with the sword. If I want to appeal to the Father and request twelve legions of angels, He would give it to me. But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it, He says, that it, I think that means that the cup that I have to drink would be fulfilled, that it must be so. 
What scriptures is he talking about here? That the scriptures must be fulfilled. Well, certainly you could think of specific passages in scripture that foretell the death and burial of Christ. One that, think, one that comes to mind is Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1, that was penned by David originally. Jesus cries out on the, on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or what about Isaiah 53, 3-6? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every Everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is that that he's talking about? Well, it's Jesus. There are unique situations in Scripture that are fulfilled uniquely by Christ on the cross. There are specific texts that even Matthew has pointed out throughout the gospel. Remember where he says things like, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by this or that prophet. Matthew tells us that time and time again. There are specific passages that Jesus is thinking these scriptures have to be fulfilled. But I think also Jesus is speaking in the most broad of generalities. That all of the scriptures, everything in the Old Testament, bends toward God redeeming His people through a king that is coming of the line of David. And that king is going to be His son. And I'm thinking about even obscure texts like Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. When's that coming about? In Christ. What about Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27? I will sprinkle clean, uh, sprinkle clean water on you, and you, will, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's clear that the, all of Scripture is bending towards this moment when God redeems His people through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. So when Jesus says the Scriptures must be fulfilled, He's not only talking about specific texts, He's talking about all of it. I'm the point of it all, He's saying. How would it come about? Remember, Jesus is praying in the garden not two minutes ago that if it be possible, let this cup pass from Him. And now he's telling Peter, the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. Well, what happened to the cup passing from you? Do the Scriptures have to be fulfilled? Or do they not have to be fulfilled? What the disciples with the swords are attempting to do, and what Jesus is doing by praying to the Father, are really two different things. Jesus is asking if there is another possible way that all of the things that the Scriptures are talking about would be fulfilled, to which the answer is no. The disciples are simply looking to save their friend, to stand in front of him and thwart, if possible, chuckles, the will of God. They want to fight with him, even if that means death. They're going to do it. Jesus, however, has had his prayer answered. The cup is sitting before him. 
There is absolutely no other way than that he drink it. And once he's had his prayer answered, what do we see? Do we see anxiety? No. We see peace. He's resigned to the will of God for even this present circumstance, even though it means he's going to go to the cross and be tortured. It's going to mean awful things for him. And yet he knows this is the will of God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now he's showing us exactly what it looks like when a citizen of the kingdom of heaven accepts the will of God for his life, even though it means certain danger, especially when the unfolding of time happens in a way that's going to guarantee emotional anguish and physical pain. He accepts this is the will of God. They could have arrested him at the temple at any time, but they chose now, like he has some sort, he was some sort of criminal that was needed to be caught in the act. And he says again, all this took place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then what happens right after he says that? What happens in the text? Right after he says that, all of the disciples fled. Now, ironically, that too is in accordance with Scripture. As David says in Psalm 88, 8, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in that I cannot escape. All of it is playing out in accordance with God's plan. So it seems very odd, given that we've just seen the disciples willing to fight. With swords, they pull them out. They go at the head of the high priest and those that came to arrest him. And now, when Jesus is resigned to be arrested, where are they? They're gone. They've left. They've completely fled. What happened to their willingness to fight? They had swords. And now that they've dropped them, the only thing left for them is to run. As it turns out, it's easier to fight and to submit. See, fighting with swords is actually the easy task. When you fight, you still have a chance. That's why we call it a fighting chance. But when you submit, it's a 100% guarantee you're going to death. So fighting is actually the easier option. When it comes down to time to resign yourself to the will of God, that this is going to happen, what do the disciples do? They take then the easier road, which is to run. That's what they have the most trouble with, is submitting to the certain outcome that Jesus is going to die and His death might mean their death. You understand what Jesus is doing here. I'm the coward that's running in the garden. Or running from Jesus. I'm the coward that's chosen to flee. Jesus is the one that's standing there accepting the will of God that He's going to have to drain the cup dry for me. Because I'm the one that fled. That's the essence of the Gospel. That Jesus is modeling for us the perfect citizen of the Kingdom of Heaven. Because I can't be. I don't know how to be. There's nothing within me that has in its nature the ability to be that perfect citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's told to us in Matthew 5.48, you must therefore be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Moral perfection is demanded of me, and I cannot provide it. I'm running right there with the disciples who refuse to submit to the will of God. And yet Jesus is here submitting to the will of God for me. But what does that leave us with? We think about that text and just bringing it down to us, where we live. What does that actually mean for us as we think about what Jesus is modeling? How do I look at that passage where Jesus not only loves his enemies, calls them friend, prays for those who persecute him, submits to God's will perfectly, becomes a perfect model of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What does that mean for me? Well, there's two things that I think we need to lay out. First, there's the easy and obvious one. How willing are you to submit to the will of God? In order to think about that, a lot of times when we say the will of God, when we even just say that phrase, we think about a future, something in the future. God has determined a future path for me, and I have to submit to it. And most of our prayer time, particularly when there's a hard decision coming up, is spent praying that God would reveal to us His will so that we could submit to it, is it not? That's what we want. I want 100% certainty that this is the will of God so that my choice then becomes easy. And that's how we think of the will of God. God's will for me, it's set, and I need to figure out what it is. That's often not how the will of God is discussed in Scripture. Often the will of God is discussed in Scripture as what God has given to you, except without complaining. And that is the will of God. It's obvious because you are surrounded by present-day circumstances in which you have to live and move. And God's will for you is to obey Him in the situations that He has put you in. The place that He's put you in, the town that He's put you in, the church that He's put you in, the job that He's put you in, the family that He's put you in. So really what you need to figure out, am I okay with submitting to the will of God, is looking around at all of your present day circumstances and going, am I willing to obey God in all of this? So take inventory of what He's given you. Your job, your school maybe, your family, areas that you have to serve, church, perhaps the community that you live in. He intends for you to take care of all of these well in obedience to His will for your life. His will is that you would obey Him in all of those circumstances. I tend to refer to this as a garden that He has placed you in. He's given you what's inside this garden, and believe it or not, He has not given you what's outside the garden as much as you might like it. You might look over the fence and you go, man, I really wish I had that soil over there. But He hasn't given you that soil, so that's not yours. What is yours is the garden that He has placed you in. Now, if He's put you at work, and He's also put you as the head of a family... He intends for you to work and to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Are you walking that line? When you decide that work becomes way more important and you alienate your family and become a workaholic, 
You have chosen one thing over the other, but he hasn't given you that. He has given you work and family. Or perhaps your desire is to take care of your family or to spend more time with your family at the expense of your work and thus become lazy. Well, he hasn't given you that responsibility either. He's given you a garden all the way to the edge of its borders. Are you willing to submit to his will for your life? He's given you the people that are over you in places of authority. Are you willing to submit to his will for your life? So that's one way to think about it. And that's important, and we should think about how our life is lived out, and am I willing to submit to God's will for my life? But if we're going to get one click closer to this passage, where Jesus is about to be tortured, I want us to think about perhaps an event that might come in the very near future when persecution, physical persecution of the church, comes to your doorstep. What does submitting to God's will look like then? In Revelation chapter 13, Satan is depicted as a dragon and he gives his authority to a beast. Typically in the Bible, the beasts are governing authorities, especially governments, but really anybody that has some kind of overarching authority. Earthly governments apply, obviously, most, but anybody that has some sort of governing authority. Well, in Revelation 13, 4, the people are tempted, the whole world is tempted, to praise and worship the beast who has authority over them and desire salvation, give, give to them everything. Give to them allegiance, uh, pray to sal- for salvation, believe that salvation will come from the beast, And this is what they say in 13.4. And they worshipped the dragon, that is Satan. For he had given his authority to the beast, that is these government authorities. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? But then, just a few verses later, we consider the people of God. How do they respond? When it comes time to bend the knee and worship the beast or die, how do they respond? Starting in verse 7 of chapter 13 of Revelation. Also it was allowed, that is the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Listen to this, verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. As Christians, we have to walk a line. There's no question. In the world we live in, we have to be innocent as doves and yet wise as serpents. The current culture, as the temperature continues to heat up, 
we have to be savvy. We have to watch what we say. Social media, we act totally different on social media than the rest of the world. The way we use our words, whether it be in person or on social media, is completely different than the rest of the world. We have to think about representing Christ at all times. Yet we also know that we have to be wise in the way we do it. In the same way that you don't just walk into China and stand on a soapbox on the middle of the city and preach because you'll be arrested and killed immediately. There's no good in that. It's interpersonal evangelism in China and Iran and lots of these places. So too, we have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we encounter the society around us. But there is a time when the clock runs out on political maneuvering. There's a time when we're cornered and the will of God becomes manifest before us. Sign that you agree or lose your job. And signing means that you deny Christ's authority over you. Or maybe even bend the knee or die. Go to that church You'll be arrested and killed. There's a point where political maneuvering has run out. And you need to decide now what your decision is going to be then. Because then it's too late. You need to decide now what your decision is going to be. Is it with the disciples where you run away from Jesus and save your life? Or is it resigning yourself to the gallows? Decide now. What's it going to be? Don't wonder. Don't think to yourself, man, I wonder what would happen to me if that day came. Decide now, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to resign myself to the very obvious will of God and I'm going to go to the gallows. Remember, Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 38-39, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Resigning yourself to the will of God is really a question. Do you believe? Do you believe there's life to come? If so, Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to lose. And we have nothing to fear. And Jesus models that perfectly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for our hearts as we consider your will for our life. To walk in obedience to what you have commanded us to do. That is hard given the circumstances that we're in sometimes. So, Father, we pray for your help. We pray for conviction for those times where we intend on not only disobeying what you have put in front of us, but disobeying you who have placed it there. I pray, Father, that you would give us not only conviction of our sin, but a reminder 
that it is Christ who lived for us. It is Christ who is perfect. That he has provided for us what we never could. That that would bring us back to repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name.